0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danproftshow. Does it bother you at all that your kids are being... Instructed by neo-segregationists, neo-racists. These are the uh, terms of John McCorder, Columbia University linguistics professor, African-American gentleman. This is Black History Month, but it's uh, become Rewrite History Month, and there's a lot of tacit support or willful blindness in advancing it, isn't there? Is it uh, sharing in the delusion to survive? Well, thankfully, people like John McCorder do, and he has uh, written a piece that, uh, Outlines a Persuasion Community, it, it, where he is, where he posts some of his excellent thinking and writing. Uh, and it's an, this is an excerpt from his new book, The Elect, which is what he calls them. neo Neoracists posing as anti-racists and their threat to a progressive America. Uh, here is how he describes the uh, anti-racists, the race hustlers, that your school district retains to come in and educate your children about race relations. That you bring into your businesses or your corporate leadership brings into your businesses to educate you about race relations. Go ahead. Turn your life over to people peddling a theory that ends with what we discussed last week. You are racist if you keep your dog outside, if you keep your dog inside, because some people have to keep their dogs outside, disproportionately a minority. That's your privilege that makes you racist. That's the intellectual rigor of these neo-racists and neo-segregationists. The tenants from John McWhorter. Here's how you, to be a good neo-racist. They call anti-racist. John McCord properly calls neo-racist. When black people say you have insulted them, apologize with profound sincerity and guilt. But don't put black people in a position where you expect them to forgive you. They have dealt with too much to be expected to. Number two. Here's the. This is the anti-racist slash neo-racist catechism, as he terms it. Black people are a conglomeration of disparate individuals. Black culture is code for pathological, primitive, ghetto people. But don't expect black people to assimilate to white social norms because black people have a culture of their own. Silence about racism is violence, but elevate the voices of the oppressed over your own. You must strive eternally to understand the experience of black people, but you can never understand what it is to be black, and if you think you do, you're a racist. Show an interest in multiculturalism, but do not culturally appropriate. What is not your culture is not for you, and you may not try it or do it, but if you aren't nevertheless interested in it, you're a racist. Support black people in creating their own spaces and then stay out of them. But seek to have black friends. If you don't have any, you're a racist. And if you claim any, they'd better be good friends in their private spaces you aren't allowed in. When whites move away from black neighborhoods, it's white flight. But when whites move into black neighborhoods, it's gentrification, even when they pay black residents generously for their houses. If you're white and only date white people, you're a racist. But if you're white and date a black person, you are, if only deep down, exotifying an other. Black people cannot be held accountable for everything every black person does, but all whites must acknowledge their personal complicity in the perfidy throughout history of quote unquote whiteness. Black students must be admitted to schools via adjusted grade and test score standards to ensure a representative number of them and foster a diversity of views in classroom. In classrooms, but it is racist to assume a black student was admitted to a school visa via racial preferences, and racist to expect them to represent the diverse view in classroom discussions. McQuarter, after outlining the catechism, writes, "I suspect deep down, most know that none of this catechism makes any sense. Less obvious is that it was not composed with logic in mind. The self-contradiction of these tenets is crucial in revealing that third-wave anti-racism is not a philosophy but a religion. The revelation of racism is itself." and alone. The point, the intention of this curriculum. As such, the fact if, that if you think a little, the tenets cancel one another out is considered trivial. That they serve their true purpose of revealing people as bigots is paramount, sacrosanct as it were. The um, fundamental point here in summary from quarter. battling power relations and their discriminatory effects must be the central focus of all human endeavor, intellectual, moral, civic, artistic, You must allow that to consume your life. Those who resist this focus or even evidence insufficient adherence to it must be sharply condemned, deprived of influence, and ostracized. And that's why people won't talk about it, because they're cowards. How else to describe it? You wouldn't tolerate any other sort of racism, any other sort of racial nonsense, but you tolerate this because you're afraid. And I suspect no amount of reasoning— from a superior intellect like John McWhorter, particularly as compared to the hustlers like Ibram Kendi of the world, who he's destroyed. And by the way, Ibram Kendi, by that I mean Henry Rogers, changed his name. Probably won't get you out of the fear-addled state, just another avenue to inflict fear for the purpose of control and submission. And people will dutifully go along, won't they? How much will they? Oh, (laughs) and at what uh, levels in terms of the... Creme de la creme of society, so to speak They certainly think so Bari Weiss, who used to be uh, with the New York Times She writes about the neo-segregationists too A distressed parent writes me from Harvard-Westlake $41,000 a year is the tuition It's the alma mater of Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal She tells me this fall a dean lavished praise Upon Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour These are the anti-Semitic organizers of the uh, P-Hat marches Both Louis Farrakhan fans, lavish praise on them, both Louis Farrakhan fans, in a high school-wide assembly. She is shocked, so I mirror it back, but at this stage of the game in which Mallory is appearing in the pages of Vogue, I'm not surprised in the least. Then another parent at the school tells me of the school's 20-page plan outlining its anti-racist program. Policies include assessing word problems in math and rewriting them to be more representative and culturally sensitive, redesigning the 11th grade U.S. history course from a critical race theory perspective. I start writing it up only to see the news out of Dalton. Tuition, $54,000 a year. Uh, The Manhattan School managed to keep its manifesto to a mere eight pages, but its demands include abolishing high-level academic courses by 2023 if the performance of black students is not on par with non-blacks, hiring 12 full-time diversity officers and multiple psychologists to support students, quote-unquote, coping with race-based traumatic stress, and compensating any student of color, compensating any student of color who appears in Dalton promotion material. Then there's Brentwood tuition, $45,000 a year, announces some dialogue and community building sessions, which actually segregate families by race. I mean, I know uh, we're used to that in Chicagoland. Oak Park River Forest was uh, ahead of the learning curve with respect to doing uh, neo-segregation. This is happening everywhere. So don't tell me it's not happening at your school because I know it is. Now tell me what you're going to do about it. And I mean, you don't have to answer to me, but if you want to have a conversation about it, uh, but just understand, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you do, then you're perpetuating the new racial order, which is not going to end well for your kids, for your economic interests, uh, or for this country. And I mean that black, white, Latino, Asian across the board, the the, division, unity, blah, 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 blah. You want to separate separate, you want to, I mean, I'm just invoking Frederick Douglass's words. You want to confer benefits or impose responsibilities by race and come over the top this way with the, uh, the neo-racist catechism that John McWhorter nicely created for them. (laughs) I mean, it's not something that they would adopt, but it's a great description of what they're doing and what they're, what they're teaching. Something like that. You think that ends well for anybody except those that are peddling this poison and getting paid handsomely to do so because of Frady Cat school administrators and C suite executives. I would encourage people to pick up the documentary Eli Steele did a few years back, "How Jack Became Black," and he talked. The documentary is about enrolling his son in the L A. public school system. Eli Steele, the son of Shelby Steele, who is, and his son because of the woman he married, it's like his son is like white, black, Jewish. Uh, Latino, uh, American, Indian, Native American. <laughs> so so I'm sorry, which box do I check for that? And by the way, that's happening more and more. I think there's something like one in six relationships in America are mul- are uh, are multiracial or biracial. So where's this going? So how do you keep this up? Well, they have an answer for that, don't they? However you identify. And how are people are going to identify? Well, you're told to be a victim, so identify with whatever gets you the most benefits from designate yourself a victim and whatever imposes the least responsibilities if you're identified as an oppressor because those are there are only two categories of americans according to these neo-racists and neo-segregationists oppressors and victims i mean remember they make money by peddling divisiveness so unity their phony unity calls is not just uniformity you shall comply it's also we expect some of you not to comply we hope you don't comply because divisiveness is good for business whether it's a school administrator, K through 12, university, or one of these uh, these guys like Kendi, who gets paid uh, you know twenty five, fifty thousand dollars to come tell a law firm that uh, you know all their white partners are racists, and here's what you can do to make your law firm anti racist, you know follow the John McWhorter Catechism. If you get to live in your make believe world, I get to live in mine, and that's. That's fine. You can live in a make-believe world if you want. The problem comes when you force other people to live in that world and you deprive them of opportunities or you impose responsibilities in order to foster your make-believe world. That's where we get into a bit of a problem.
0: seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
2: welcome back to the dan proft show i uh, really enjoy this piece by don boudreau who i always enjoy uh, over at the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, Boudreaux runs the Mercatus Center, George Macy University, noted economist. My incessant wondering, what I wonder about. My incessant wondering about COVID is about why people don't wonder. My incessant wondering about COVID is instead about what other people think or refuse to think about COVID. The other people being those who, after reading this piece will accuse me of being either appallingly selfish or inexcusably unaware that the coronavirus spreads through humans coming into close physical proximity to each other. Here's the feature of COVID I incessantly wonder about what's so special about this communicable and dangerous disease that causes humanity to treat it as differently as as differing categorically from the countless other communicable and dangerous diseases that we regard with utter blaseness? It won't do to answer that COVID's lethality is higher than normal. Uh, such, uh, an answer, uh, su- such an answer, strictly speaking, implies that lockdowns, mass social distancing, all the other arbitrary excesses of massive government powers and antisocial behaviors that are justified as necessary to f- fight COVID-19 become appropriate the moment we encounter a disease that is even slightly more, natu- more dangerous than quote-unquote normal. How much higher than normal must uh, rise the lethality of a communicable pathogen in order to justify the sort of wholesale rearrangement of human existence and crushing of human freedom that we've suffered over the past eleven months? Things he wonders about. To borrow from Arsenio Hall, once upon a time, things that make you go hmm. But why? But I, I love the question. Here are the things I wonder about. Writes Boudreaux. I have questions. What I but my his overriding question is why don't other people have those same questions? Uh, we have a, a wartime president, and we're all doing our part to aid the war effort. Uh-huh. Uh huh. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Woods, New York Times bestselling author, senior fellow at the Mises Institute, host of the Tom Woods Show, and author of the politically incorrect guide um, to also uh, author of your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown, a non-hysterical guide to COVID-19. Your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown, a hysterical guide to COVID-19 that uh, your Facebook friends are wrong about the lockdown piece is what I really enjoy. I love the sarcasm. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. So I didn't uh, realize that my Facebook friends were not all noted epidemiologists.
3: Oh, You know, I have built up a little bit of a brand now, coming up with free eBooks called "Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Blank." It works for everything, Dan. Every topic you can think of, whether it's guns or healthcare, or whatever. And the thing is, I know we curate our Facebook friends, and we know most of them uh, because they maybe we meet them at conferences or whatever. But we have our high school friends, who for some reason, despite all the hundreds of intelligent posts we put up there over the years they're still stuck in their old conventional views. It's like we've posted nothing. Has it all been in vain? So I've I've released these e- these ebooks. <laughs>
2: uh and so um uh I I, I got to start cuz I, I, uh, I, I perused your ebook. Um I got to start with Tony Fauci who is um you know, been canonized by the political class throughout this and he was on with Brett Baer yesterday saying uh you know the mask wearing for example that's going to have to continue on le- until and unless there is no identifiable shard of covid-19 still circulating in the western world um uh and and so so it just persists and this, this is the the new storyline we're seeing pop up not just fauci who seems to be sort of a spokesperson for the uh lockdown or crowd but in the wall street journal and elsewhere hey 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 just because you got vaccinated uh, doesn't mean you don't have to wear a mask and you still got a social distance hey 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 keep wearing the mask even when you get to herd immunity hey 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 this is going to go on forever
3: well fauci i had on my uh, program uh, a a fellow you should look into talking to i love this guy jay bodhacharya he's a professor at stanford we've had him on sure Oh, have you? Okay. What's great about him is that I mean, I can't speak for you guys, but I, when I talk about this, I get kind of a hot head, and maybe I lose my temper a bit because this is such an atrocity that's been carried out on us, and people are just sitting back accepting it like it's normal, and I just can't stay calm and reasonable. He is so calm and reasonable. I he's like the, the medical equivalent of Perry Como, you know, super soothing and calm. <laughs> I love this guy, and I add him on, and I asked him just flat out. I'm going to ask you to say something about the canonized saint of this whole fiasco, namely Anthony Fauci. What do you think about him? And he was very blunt with me. He said, look, I have a book on my shelf co-edited by Anthony Fauci. I know he is a credentialed expert on some things, but he's not omniscient on every conceivable field, among them balancing costs and benefits when it comes to policies like this. And he says, look, Fauci's been bad on schools. We've known the research on schools since there was a a contact tracing study in April in Iceland. We knew right away that schools were not a source of spread, and he's been spreading panic about that. He had this ridiculously embarrassing exchange with Rand Paul about uh, there not being any, he didn't know about T-cell immunity or pre-existing immunity to uh, to this virus among some people, but there's plenty of, of, of research on that. I think it wasn't until September or possibly even October, before he finally acknowledged there might be some side effects to lockdown, there might be some collateral damage. Oh, you don't say. Even the New York Times, I mean, when the New York Times admits something, you know it's overwhelming. They have no choice. The New York Times pointed out some time ago that over the next several years, there are going to be more than 2 million excess deaths from tuberculosis, HIV, and uh, malaria because of missed uh, uh, health services because of the lockdowns now that's millions of people this is not even no one's even bothering to point that out because they're monomaniacally fixated on one thing
2: Uh, so uh, fauci it was it it went unnoticed uh, by him when 40 million people were suddenly unemployed uh, spring of last year
3: No, no no i mean somebody did ask him once and this was reported in the wall street journal are you factoring in collateral damage from lockdown he said no because his view was that's not his role. I'm a medical professional. And I'm supposed to tell you how to go after this virus. Okay, I mean I suppose maybe that is partly his job. But the real question is: Is going after one virus should that be our society's goal? Well, there's no. There's no scientist who's trained to answer that question. That's just superstition to think that. That's a philosophical question that we have to answer. We have to balance a lot of costs and benefits here. You could save some lives, possibly from the virus, but you're going to lose lives in other ways, and you're going to destroy the very reason we're alive in the first place. If living was just a matter of biological existence, then I guess we should all be perfectly satisfied to sit in a windowless room eating cans of navy beans for 75 years. But this is not fulfilling, this is not why we're here.:
2: When we come back with author Tom Woods, I want to share an email a physicist who listens to uh, my morning show sent us regarding uh, what science education in K through12 has become. Get uh, his reaction more with Tom Woods right after.
0: He Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, talking all things COVID-19 and from the perspective of sanity with Tom Woods, best-selling author. And uh, Tom, I got this email from a physicist He writes, science education has become little more than a computer-generated magic show intermixed with some live tricks. The underlying theory is sometimes taught and always absent the hands-on experience of working with equipment and the errors of measurement. Science is taught as absolute knowledge rather than as a process of theory and measurement and debate. You know, Tony Fauci, these TV doctors, they would do the nation a service to maybe take a step back at some point and explain to people what science is and what it is not. It is not absolute knowledge. It's what this physicist who wrote to us says it is, a process of theory and measurement and debate.
3: I remember early on in this, there was some doctor in New York who just made an amateur YouTube video saying, look, the ventilators that Andrew Cuomo says we need 40,000 of, which was laughable, they wound up getting a fraction of that. And even that, they gave some of them away to other states. He said the ventilators are making the situation worse. Now, of course, that wasn't, quote, the science of the time. That was a dissenting voice. But thank goodness some people listen to that dissenting voice because it turns out the ventilators were a problem and people were being put on them much too readily and that was not helping thank goodness we had a dissenting voice i mean i i'm a doctor in the joe in the uh, jill biden sense you know i have a phd <laughs> i don't have an md okay but as a phd though i can read charts i'm not an epidemiologist although i've talked to a lot of them and they agree with me i can read charts by the way there was no science of lockdown till 2020 there is no such thing And California has ruined everybody's life for almost a year. At some point, you have to sit back and say, is this doing any good? Or is it just voodoo that they don't dare back off from? Because then they'd have to admit they ruined our lives for nothing.
2: Uh, Well, you've already seen that. Actually, uh, Cuomo and Fauci were uh, workshopping a script just a few months ago in a Zoom call where Fauci joined Cuomo to uh, buttress St. Andrew of COVID-19 standing in New York City, in New York State, talking about, you know, maybe uh, De Niro can play you and Pacino can play me and so on and so forth. They were having a good old time, so so a- absolutely there will be movie. Movies, I hope, uh, I mean, you know, he's, perhaps Tony Fauci will be in line for some sort of like Obama-esque Netflix deal.
3: But Yet, isn't it interesting that Cuomo had to say a few weeks ago, look, we have to start reopening because if we don't, there, he, his words were, there won't be anything left to reopen. Now, of course, we've been saying that all along, but it was so bizarre reading the comments on that because, of course, he's spent the last year terrifying everyone in New York. So they're not going to turn on a dime. They're all saying, why won't our governor keep us safe anymore? I mean, it's, it's sad and scary.
2: Uh, I want to get your reaction to a couple of things. Holman Jenkins wrote Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal has had a lot of good commentary on COVID over the many months. And he talked uh, specifically in a recent piece about two lessons that we should learn that we won't. But, you know, he's trying. Uh, The first was taught in quick succession by Wuhan and then northern Italy. When hospitals visibly break down constraints on political action, much of it ill-advised will tend to disappear. That's one lesson so that perhaps this idea of restraint will uh, be reconsidered the next time around. Number two, the lesson concerns the vaccine, and he's really been beating this drum, that uh, the uh, whether via challenge trials or suspending sort of the uh, normal protocols with respect to uh, the clinical trials to get a vaccine to market once the uh, particular properties of the virus had been identified, which was like uh, more than a year ago, uh, we could have gotten a safe Uh, And effective, maybe not 95% effective, but still safe and effective vaccines to market faster than we otherwise did and saved many more lives in the process. And the argument that, oh, people wouldn't have confidence in it if we, if we uh, subverted the normal clinical trial procedures that are FDA mandated. Um, well, that that turned out not to be true too. I mean, there was just as much cynicism going through the FDA demanded procedures because of all the politicization of everything COVID related. What do you think about those two lessons? One on the vaccine, and two on, you know, when when the perception is the healthcare system is breaking down, then you know, civil liberties and economic interests be damned.
3: Another lesson that comes out of the the fear anyway of the health system breaking down is the importance of looking at numbers in context. We hear these scary numbers of the percentage of such-and-such of such beds in, in hospitals being occupied, and it sounds scary because none of us know. How do we know what the normal load of pa- patients in a hospital is expected to be in, in ICU beds or whatever? Compare it to previous years. The, the hospitals generally, in order to keep the lights on, the, the ICU has to be 90% full. You know, the, this, the, the beds have to be full 80 to 90, 90, sometimes even higher percent. That's the way it is all the time. But nobody so, – so every time somebody tweets that out, some, some reporter breathlessly tells us, oh, this percentage of beds is occupied. I always ask, what percentage was occupied last year? And, of course, crickets because they haven't even bothered to look.
2: Tom Woods, New York Times best-selling author, senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and a host of The Tom Woods Show. Tom, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the ebook. book
3: My pleasure. Thanks
4: a lot. Stand down, turn me on Stomach like a motor Make me run on every minute
0: of it Love love it The more you listen, the more you'll know This is, this, this is the Dan Proft Show
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show And, uh, boy, this is, uh An interesting op-ed, New York Daily News, which of course is a left-wing rag, from a a columnist named Justin Krebs. Do whatever it takes to get kids back in classrooms. Look who's come over to the party from the St. Cuomo, Mayor Warren Wilhelm side. Isn't that interesting? conversations he never thought he uh would have imagined 11 months ago or conversations he's having today like when his kid asks him whether or not it's in-person learning day uh-huh uh and uh it's just come to his realization that public health data shows we can return to school safely and but of course with the leftist bent if we invest in our safety in smart and ways at, adequate covid tests blah 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 but uh Beating the drum for return to school from the left, it's fascinating. Even as uh, a lot of parents are beating the path out of government schools, as school choice gains momentum in states, the uh, increased demand for alternate opportunities to educate children other than the local government school system is indicated not only by the half a million students, the public education system in America has lost, K-12, through but also in the legislation to expand education savings accounts, making its way through state legislatures in Iowa, in Florida, in Arizona. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Nathaniel Kunin, who is a student at Loyola University in Maryland, and a future Leaders Fellow with the American Federation for Children. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: It seems like this is a, a you know not the way we wanted it, of course, but an opportunity that to, to, when we've got to the attention of so many American families, to really prosecute the case for more competition at the K through 12 level, and it seems like a lot more American families and state legislators around the country are starting to listen.
5: Absolutely. Um, if the pandemic has shown us anything, is that flexibility and providing options to families both who have financial and health and safety concerns, is absolutely something that we need to be focused on.
2: Uh, do you think that uh, this is uh, something that is um, uh, that, that younger people are being made aware of, too? I mean, you know, the, the whole sort of um, uh, prosecuting the arguments among the young who will then turn around within their cohorts and argue for these particular policies make you know, as is often said, school choice, the civil rights issue of our time, and that necessarily needs some leadership from from young people.
5: Absolutely. And I say this as somebody who's still currently a student. Um, I do think that young people are becoming increasingly more aware of this issue. First of all, that education is a huge core issue to almost every other problem that we face in our country today, but also that as we continue to speak more and more about systems in this country, um, the political spectrum has always leaned towards protecting the education system. Um, And part of our mission as school choice advocates and my personal mission as a school choice uh, as a school choice recipient is to make sure that we're shifting that conversation away from protecting the system to protecting the students.
2: Well, in addition to that, it would seem to me that if you have uh, some of your friends um, in your age cohort, some of the kids on campus, if they consider themselves, a, you know, enlightened, uh, left of center type of person, well, how, how do you justify the, that you have choices to go to Loyal University of Maryland or go to private school before that, perhaps, that other people don't have based on their household income and their address? And that disproportionately affects minority kids. So how do you square that with, you know, the rest of your social justice mantra? It seems to me that uh, uh, those who consider themselves, uh, you know, a very compassionate progressives have a real quandary there.
5: I couldn't agree more. Um, there seems to be this preconceived notion that we're OK with kids having school choice if they're rich. Um, but then we get queasy at the idea of extending school choice to lower income families or minority families, And that is a real area where we can be focused on, on, you know, correcting some inequities. Um, But for whatever reason, uh, that just isn't something that has become a policy priority for uh, many legislators or for uh, many students in their own political ideologies.
2: How how did you come to, to this issue and how did this become important to you?
5: So I'm actually a recipient of a school choice scholarship. Um, I grew up in Florida, and my parents obtained for me the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship when I was very young. Um, They were very interested in investing in my education early, and I was incredibly fortunate to receive this scholarship, without which I wouldn't have been able to attend the private school that I did. We wouldn't have been able to afford it. Um, So what I constantly, what really got me into this mission and got me into this sector is the always present understanding that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of students in this country that don't have the opportunity that I did. I was fortunate to be able to essentially choose my education destiny and it paid off. I'm the first, uh, I'm the first person in my family, my direct family to graduate college. Um, and, and that's something that a lot of students don't get in this country, which is something that constantly motivates me. Uh, to work to to try to provide the same opportunity to other kids.
2: And so when you promote this, what are the sorts of arguments that you, you get, and what's the pushback you receive from, from those who don't uh, appreciate your position?
5: Well, so that's actually what I always find to be very interesting, is that when talking with the general public, those that don't have political interest in the issue, almost everybody – says, wow, that's such a great idea. Of course, we should be giving families and students choice over their own academic future. Um, It's really the biggest pushbacks we get are those who just automatically assume that being pro school choice means that you're anti-teacher or anti-public school, which couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Teachers want options too, and school choice studies have shown that they actually help public schools even. I support all forms of education. I just think that families should be able to choose what's best for their situation and their student.
2: Yeah, uh, not to mention, I mean, in Chicago, half the Chicago public school teachers send their kids to private school. Um, What do they know? When we come back, I I want to uh, uh, pick up on that a bit, just the pushback you you receive. I think that's interesting, uh, and, and we need to explore that a bit more. We'll come back with Nathaniel Kuneen, a student at Loyola University of Maryland, and future Leaders Fellow with the American Federation for Children right after
6: this.
0: Listen to podcast me. on the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Nathaniel Kunin, student at Loyola University, of Maryland, and future leaders fellow with the American Federation for Children. We're talking education and school choice. And uh, something you said before the break, Nathaniel, about the people saying, well, oh, if you're for school choice, then you're anti-teacher. I just love that sort of, like, reflexive Pat line. Um, well, I'm for school choice. And, and it turns out in charter schools and private schools, they have teachers there too. So, I don't know how you make out a case of being anti-teacher, but it's sort of an indication that uh, the teachers union propaganda has been really effective, including to getting to young people that they give you that 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 some of people you speak to give you that Pavlovian response.
5: Absolutely, especially because now the discourse of has, of course, turned towards now we want to create more options for teachers so that they can make sure that they're protecting you know, their health and their safety in this pandemic. And absolutely, that's a great idea. We're just happy that they're finally coming along to the idea of choice.
2: And uh, uh, the um, experience on on college campus as you're trying to get uh, people interested in this, uh, you know, how are you trying to uh, proselytize, if you will, uh, the school choice arguments, school choice policies, whether it's in your home state of Florida, which is, you know, really one of the leading states when it comes to school choice or Maryland or just among your your uh, fellow classmates.
5: So I find it actually to be very easy, um, especially around people my age is everybody is, is interested in having political conversations these days. Um, and something that I say kind of like a broken record is one of the reasons I love being a school choice advocate is it's kind of a no brainer issue. I've never been in a situation where I've gotten the chance to explain what school choice is and how it's affected my life and how it could affect others lives to somebody and had them turn around and say, that doesn't sound like a good idea. (laughs) Um, Most of the time, once you break through some of the misconceptions around school choice, almost everybody in my experience says, wow, like I couldn't believe I haven't thought about that it that way before.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I would assume most of the the classmates you speak to are beneficiaries of school choice. They don't even recognize it. It's just school choice at the collegiate level, not the K through 12 level. right. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So some of this is just sort of, you know, getting them to see things for how they are, perhaps the uh, issues or perspectives they haven't heard and thus haven't contemplated to this point.
5: Absolutely. Um, and that's something that I'm always very quick to point out is that, you know, Loyola University, Maryland, where I attend is as a private Jesuit school. So I'm exercising school choice every single day that I walk into the classroom the same way I was in first and second grade.
2: He is Nathaniel Cunin, student at Loyola University of Maryland, as you just heard, also Future Leaders Fellow with the American Federation for Children. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
2: This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at schoolchoicenow. That's at SchoolChoiceNow.
0: is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Not China's fault. No, no, it was not the Com's fault, uh, the COVID-19. The World Health Organization, a Chinese-owned and operated, has uh, announced that uh, the virus did not likely escape from the Wuhan virology lab, but rather uh, is more likely to have been transmitted from an animal to a human. And that's what started the spread. So don't go blaming President Xi and those good people over in Beijing. Uh, some have, some have not, uh, but I'm sure they'll be happy to, as the Associated Press did, amplify this dubious information without any consideration. You know, there's, there won't be any warnings in Dorsey World about uh, the WHO's press release on behalf of the Chinese communists, of course. Uh, and the Trump administration, senior national security officials there, including Pompeo, suggested in the closing days of that administration that it was pretty clear that it did come from the virology lab, whether it was purposeful or accidental is an open question. So here we go again. We're going to have uh, our press corps, I suspect, we will see them doing the bidding of Chinese communists, the same way our press corps 50 years ago was largely doing the bidding of Soviet communists during the height of the Cold War and in, obviously into the Reagan era when he, in a dastardly fashion, called the Soviet Union the evil empire to the chagrin of the DC press corps. It hasn't changed over the last uh, 40 years. It's just gotten worse and more allied, more sympathetic to America's enemies, at least the foreign ones. And that's been clear. And so we'll see how this plays out. But uh, it uh, calls for a stop, look and listen and all things COVID-19 related, including the infringements on your liberty and our comedy as a populace, C-O-M-I-T-Y, as well as C-O-M-E-D-Y, a comedy and comedy. And Tony Fauci was on with our friend Brett Barron's special report saying, uh, you know, this mask wearing has to go on until until he says so.
0: You know, but that will really be dependent upon how we get the level of virus in the community down. If we can get, and I have used this as an estimate, it's not definitive, that if we can get 70 to 85% of our population vaccinated and get to what we would hope would be to a degree of herd immunity, which really is an umbrella or a or a veil of protection against the community, where the level of virus is so low, it's not a threat at all, then at that point you could start thinking in terms of not having to have uniform wearing
2: of masks. so as soon as there's no possibility of transmission, uh, meaning there's no possibility that it continues to exist. And this is part of what we're seeing in the reporting now, at Wall Street Journal this week. As COVID-19 vaccines raise hope, cold reality dawns that illness is likely here to stay. The ease of transmission, new strains, limits of vaccination programs all mean COVID-19 will be around for years and a big business. Well, there you go. Not only will it be around for years, uh, and thus you'll have those using this as the basis to exercise control over others take full advantage, it becomes a cottage industry, and so you'll have a built-in constituency around continuing with these all the policies of the COVID enthusiasts and the uh, authoritarian inclined. Isn't that nice? So – uh, restaurants in Chicago begging to go from 25% capacity to 50% capacity. Oh, indoor dining resuming end of week in New York. Isn't that wonderful? The Supreme Court weighing in on California's uh, unconstitutional infringements on religious liberty to uh, write that opportunity for California residents. But I mean, you're playing whack-a-mole with these make-believers, these lockdowners. And uh, boy, I, I don't know. That's going to get exhausting. And that certainly includes now the federal government. Transportation Security Administration, TSA, announcing last week will begin finding travelers up to fifteen hundred dollars for failing to wear a proper face mask. It's not just it's not just uh, what you're wearing. It's how you're wearing it. The TSA regulation mandates masks should fit snugly, but comfortably against the side of the face. So I'm going to ask a TSA agent next time I go through security. You know, this is snug, but it's not comfortable. Where should I write my $1,500 check? To TSA? Can I just give it to you directly? And I was recently on a flight and uh, the the beginning of the flight, the middle of the flight, the end of the flight was all some air waitress telling me how uh, much of a threat I'm under if I take my mask off to have the complimentary mix And don't put it back up after I'm done chewing a bite. It was really uh, just annoying. But it's more than annoying because, of course, uh, what's next? Not just the stiff fines for arbitrary enforcement of mask policy, uh, you know, the details of which are unknowable, which means they're not the law. Uh, You also have uh, this uh, story to us. The mannequin from the men's department at uh, the Macy's in Mishawaka, who's now the transportation secretary. Federal officials are considering whether to require airline passengers have negative coronavirus tests before boarding domestic flights. Proof of a negative test already required for passengers boarding international flights under a policy imposed by C D C. Mayor Pete told Axios over the weekend there's an active conversation with CDC right now about whether to require a negative test for domestic travel as well. And then I would say, Well, okay, that's okay, I'm just gonna drive everywhere, but then I'm gonna have to turn in my gas guzzler for some sort of electric smart car to even do that. I'm sure that will be next. No, it's not a problem because number one, they're rent-seeking big business, and uh, they're shameful. Their conduct has been shameful to begin with. Number two, it's okay because they'll get bailed out. So just crater, we'll just crater your business, and then uh, we'll print some more funny money, and we'll send you forty or fifty billion dollars, maybe a hundred billion dollars, a year, year and a half from now. So you know you'll have to lay off a bunch of employees, but that's just regular people. Who cares? We'll make sure that uh, your airlines survive. We'll bail you out on the back end after we destroy you on the front end. No problem. This is uh, religious in its ferocity, this mask business, and it's to keep you focused on mask wearing or even the discussion about mask wearing, although there's not much of a discussion that's allowed. You have to abide this make-believe or you're a bad person, so you focus on that and wear your mask and look, everybody, I'm a good person. And, uh, oh, meanwhile, uh, they're uh, printing another $2 trillion of uh, money that your kids will have to pay back in some material form Uh, Meanwhile, they're imposing these further strictures and draconian fines associated with enforcement. And meanwhile, they're making all sorts of other threats. And meanwhile, they're keeping your schools closed. And meanwhile, they're keeping your your restaurants and your businesses closed. And meanwhile, they're moving a $15 minimum wage that's going to put your restaurant out of business. You know, while they've got you distracted being an orderly citizen in their brave new world, they're moving all these policies against you, your individual liberties, as I mentioned, as well as your economic interests, but no problem. There's a good piece in City Journal by a former uh, reporter for the Houston Chronicle called Science Betrayed, and he looks at the instruction of science at the K-12 through level, and he talks to researchers of all political stripes. They all come to the same conclusion about how poor the science instruction is in classrooms and In in k-12 classrooms in america and so uh, here's the combination of what you have you have the lack of science being taught and then you have anybody who has the same credentials and actually did get an education in sciences and actually is a recognized scientist i think immediately of john i the uh, world-renowned epidemiologist at stanford Uh, you have anybody like that that uh, starts to question the tv doctor's and the government scientists, and they just get marginalized. They're relegated to places like the American Institute for Economic Research in terms of anybody who will listen to them, or or people like, you know, hosts like us on this program who will listen to them based on the quality of their scholarship, based on the questions they're asking, based on the points they're making, rather than just their credential or their government sinecure. And so you have a world actually without science. And the more they say it, the less we rely on it, actually. Isn't that ironic? Nothing will change so long as they can hold the line. And then we'll transition to the next pandemic or something akin to it, which, of course, is the climate apocalypse. And this is another area where even when you're Michael Moore, just talking about science in general, you get shut down. Michael Moore produced a documentary called Planet of Humans in 2019 that called into question really some of the policies that have been advanced by environmentalists in terms of alternative fuels particularly biomass and it was really a sort of devastating indictment of what environmentalists are saying about the potential of alternate energy sources particular ones versus what the reality is. And how many people have seen Planet? Of this is Michael Moore. Why isn't this celebrated? Why isn't he on all these talk shows? Talking, he executive produced it. He wasn't the, the interviewer, the documentary on camera, but he executive produced it. What, what, where is this driving our discussion, or even included in the discussion about climate policy with uh, Climate Czar Kerry and his climate team? Nowhere. One of uh, President Trump's gravest errors was platforming Tony Fauci.
4: No time.
0: Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Impeachment Trial 2.0 begins today. And I said, if uh, you're not paying attention, you should be, because if you're a Trump voter, you're on trial. This is a trial uh, more about you than it is President Trump. President Trump as a unifying figure for Democrats, thus their move to go forward with this futile effort, futile in the sense of there won't be a conviction, but not futile in the sense that there are political points to score. They think, and that's the basis for this, side by side to understand the arguments being made, the positions being held. Jim Jordan on the one side explaining the GOP position, at least, uh, you know,
7: minus 10 members of the caucus GOP
2: position on this impeachment.
7: The Constitution, the president wins. The lack of due process. I mean, what they, this is, Matt Gates said it best this is impeachment by reflex. There was a two hour debate in the House. Yeah. At least what Adam Schiff did last year. At least there was actual hearings they might have been done in the bunker in the basement of the capitol but there was subpoenas and depositions i got to cross examine witnesses we added some actual hearings so the, the adam schiff's impeachment makes it looks great compared to this crazy thing and we know how bad that one was but the most important thing is the facts the fact you know how do you how do you incite a riot that was already planned how do you incite a riot when the president said peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard so this is nothing but an obsession with the Democrats. It has been that way. Never forget, Judge, no. on on J- uh, January 20th, 2017, 19 minutes after the president took his oath of office, the Washington Post headline was, campaign to impeach President Trump has begun. They couldn't even wait 20 it's minutes. Un-
2: judge, he was on Janine Pirro's show. That was the judge reference. And that's good because you have to address the false story the make-believers are telling about january 6th about trump's role in january 6th that has to be addressed straight away but it's also not enough because this is the left's perspective as nicely encapsulated by nicole wallace on msnbc uh, querying john heilman about uh, how mcconnell and other senate republicans who criticize trump can uh, can do anything but uh, support his conviction listen to what she suggests
7: we had a policy, and it was
0: very controversial, it was carried out under the Bush years and under the Obama years, of attacking terrorism at its root, of going after and killing, um, and in the case of Amr al-Awlaki, an American, a Yemeni-American, with a drone strike for the crime of inciting violence, inciting terrorism. Mitch McConnell was in the Senate then. He was in the Senate after 9-11 too. How does Mitch McConnell,
4: who understands
0: that the way you root out terrorism is to take on, in the case of Islamic terrorism, kill those who incite it, how does he not vote to convict someone that he said, on the floor of the Senate, incited an insurrection?
2: Boy, it sounds like more than just vote to convict, doesn't it? Uh, Drone strikes uh, to root out domestic terrorists in this country. Domestic drone strikes to uh, combat violent extremism that the Biden administration is completely uh, weaponized to, uh, to focus upon. And of course, violent extremists means largely Trump voter. This is they are in the business right now. The left is of suppression or annihilation. If you won't maintain, if you won't be suppressed, suppression or annihilation. So while the uh, the, the, the the argument on the merits, of both the law as well as the facts, is important in the context of the next week for this impeachment trial, the larger play that is being made as has been articulated by Nicole Wallace and Chris Hayes at MSNBC, the Rachel Maddow lookalike, and Jake Tapper on CNN, and so many more, the uh, L.A. Times columnist that we discussed yesterday, Virginia Heffernan, comparing Trump uh, supporters to Nazis and Hezbollah terrorists. That is the bigger play being made by the left, and Republicans need to confront that straight away too. For more on all this, we're pleased to be... Joined by Boris Epstein, he is a, an attorney and former Trump campaign official. Boris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thanks so much. Good to be here.
2: Uh, so the uh, uh, approach that the Trump legal team is uh, telegraphed that it will choose to make uh, over the next week is just basically focus on what Jim George said, sort of in in progression. Today, it's about the constitutionality of of uh, trying a president who's out of office. And then you move forward with the uh, charge and the article of impeachment and um, the facts as we understand them and call the question.
6: Well, that's right. And there's three vectors here. The first vector is the fact that this is absolutely unconstitutional. The Constitution does not allow for a trial of an impeachment trial of a former president. And there's never been one. Number two, there was absolutely no incitement whatsoever. The president said, quote, march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol. And three, the fact that discussing election fraud, voter fraud is absolutely allowable. It is absolutely legitimate. And this claim by the Democrats that any discussion, any, any any claims of voter fraud, election fraud are somehow a quote unquote big lie, which is a term the Democrats are using that was coined by none other than the disgusting Adolf Hitler. Hitler claimed that the Jews used the quote unquote big lie to discuss the German loss in World War One. Well now you've got the Democrats saying, Oh, the Republicans are just perpetrating the quote unquote big lie. Well guess what? Election fraud did happen. Voter fraud did happen. We know about the over two hundred thousand unlawful ballots in Wisconsin. They were they were counted, used against Wisconsin law and Constitution. We know about the over four hundred thousand unlawful, allegedly unlawful ballots in Georgia. And guess what? Even Democrats Mark Elias, the Democrat Democrat election lawyer, in his filing in the 22nd District of Congress in New York, 22nd Congressional District, said, oh, there was significant voting irregularities when he was opposing that result. But do you agree that this
2: is that this venue, this impeachment trial is not the venue to uh, make those claims and to 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 uh, reissue those uh, assertions? This is just about sort of the four corners of the article of impeachment Uh, get his acquittal and then he can go back to making whatever claims he he sees fit to make.
6: Well, what I think is and, 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 you know, the defense did put this in their brief uh, is the fact that this election was suspect. There's a lot of a lot of parts that were suspect. Uh, and to claim otherwise, which the Democrats are doing it, to say it's it was 100 percent clean is just false. And I think we have to continue to stand strong on that.
2: Um, thinking, though, of the, the Trump campaign legal team's performance, the legal team that was assembled to challenge the election results from November 3rd to January 6th. You know, as you and, and I know you were an advisor in that mix. What. Um, what do you think the lessons learned are how could that have been more effective the uh, legal challenges to the outcomes in the relevant states
6: i think the lessons then are that we have to fight now we have to be strong now on on these election rules we have to go and continue pointing out the deep violations of article 2 of the constitution that occurred where uh, you know where you didn't have state legislatures but state secretaries of state governors judges Changing election rules you know, the consent decree in the consent decree in Georgia, uh, again, the changed rules in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, the changed rules around uh, observing of mail-in and absentee ballots. All of that is, vi- is a violation of Article 2 of the Constitution, which allows only for state legislatures to set rules around presidential voting. So we have to be in court. We have to be in the court of public opinion fighting back against those violations now to make sure they don't happen again in 22 and 24.
2: He is Boris Epstein. Uh, he is an attorney, he is also a former Trump campaign official. Boris, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show, and uh, I want to uh, go back to a conversation we had a little bit earlier in the program about uh, impeachment trial 2.0 being you, the Trump voter, is on trial, perhaps even more so than the former president of the United States. And again, the evidentiary support for that contention comes uh, quite nakedly from some of the leading lights of the left on cable news, like Jake Tapper, who had uh, this to say over the weekend about uh, accountability for those who – perpetuated what he terms to be the big lie that would be that the election was stolen.
1: What about accountability for the others who helped spread the big election lie that incited the crowd? If there is no accountability and no attempt by the Republican Party to stop these insane lies that have taken root in their party, witness the support this week by the House Republicans for bigot and conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia. If there's no effort at accountability, this is not going to be the end of MAGA terrorism. This will only be the beginning.
2: MAGA terrorism. Chris Hayes, the Rachel Maddow lookalike on MSNBC, tweeting out, the shamelessness of Republicans on Sunday shows is a sight to behold. You got hundreds of thousands of Americans killed and then helped a deadly attack on the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And it's all, well, shucks, why are Democrats so divisive? You got hundreds of thousands of Americans killed and then helped a deadly attack on the Capitol. You did, the Trump voter. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by David Marcus, who is uh, the New York correspondent for The Federalist, federalist federalist.com, contributed to The New York Post as well. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Is that fair that um, the real individuals on trial is anybody who provided uh, material support even in the form of a vote for President Trump?
5: I do.
8: I, I do think it's fair. This is very clearly political theater. Not only do we already know what the outcome is going to be, but he's not president, so it doesn't matter anyway. There are some ways that you can know that this is theater. When Chuck Schumer and all these people go on the floor of the Senate, and they're talking about impeaching Trump, it's the only time they ever say Donald John Trump, Right right? Because this moment is so grave. Yes. It's, it, 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 it's, it's imbued with so much importance. And oh my goodness, we almost lost our republic. We were moments away from the collapse of our system of government. I mean, it's absurd. The, the other way you can tell is there's a very concerted effort right now to make January 6th a date in the same sense that 9-11 is. So they don't say the Capitol riots, they say the event, the you know, the incursion of January 6th. You'll hear that over and over. This is all just meant to try to paint Trump and his voters with this broad brush of, of being insurrectionists and stuff. So you're exactly right. I mean, they want the voters who voted for Trump and who have been, been voting more and more for populists and, and not you know, neocons and globalists. They want those people to just shut up and get back in line. I don't think it's going to work.
2: Well, and the Donald John Trump thing, too, it sounds like, you know, like the reporting on a serial killer, you report the middle name. So you mm-hmm. make sure you're not misidentifying somebody you're reporting right. on a criminal. That's the way that's received. And just Jake Tapper. I mean, Chris Hayes and MSNBC is one thing. Once upon a time, Jake Tapper, at least when he was at ABC, you know, was somewhat measured. But the riffs he's gone on lately, including the one that I excerpted. I mean, uh, the Wall Street Journal, which called on President uh, – editorial board, which called on President Trump to resign after January 6th riots, opined the assault on the Capitol was a riot and a violent one, but it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a coup. There was never any chance that Joe Biden would not become president on January 20th, whatever the fantasies of Mr. Trump and his courtiers. Well, I mean, per Jake Tapper's accountability mantra, I mean, should the Wall Street Journal editorial board be deplatformed? Should – Its members be arrested? what, What is the remedy for people that he describes as effectively domestic terrorists?
8: That's a very big and a very important question, right? And we already know that people, others at CNN are openly opining about the idea that cable providers, you know, shouldn't allow Fox News to get into people's homes. They're very serious about this, right? And I think CNN was very clear four years ago when Trump became president that they were not going to cover him the way they would cover any other – that they they had this moral responsibility to be absolutely against him. They they were open about this, Um, and that's why – Tapper will will, will just call Marjorie Taylor Greene a bigot, right? Not say alleged bigot, not say some people think she's a bigot. Just call her a bigot because they're in this whole sort of like speak truth to power thing. But it's also performative, right? All of this is performative. All of this is pomp and circumstance and a show that, again, is meant to get the people who came out for Trump to just shut up, sit down, and let the same Ocelicard or... You know guys in suits who have always run stuff run stuff that that 's what this is about ultimately
2: I used to think that um, that when the left uh, said unity, what they really meant was uniformity. I actually think now it 's the exact opposite when they say unity, they really mean divisiveness they they need to promote disunity in order to advance their themselves politically, and I want to get your reaction to that uh, theory. Uh, when we come back, we'll be right back with David Marcus, the uh, New York correspondent for the Federalist, TheFederalist.com, New York Post contributor as well. More right after this.
6: The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This, this, this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the program. We're pleased to be rejoined by David Marcus, who's the New York correspondent for The Federalist, thefederalist.com, and a contributor to The New York Post. And before the break, David, I, I suggested that you know unity was their a new speak for uniformity, You know, demanding everybody fall in line, the uh, compulsory unification of opinion, to borrow from Robert Jackson. Um, now I think it actually is unif- – unity means disunity. It means the exact opposite because – This impeachment 2.0 play, they think it benefits them politically, you know, uniting around hatred of Trump. But I also think, you know, in in combination with the identitarian politics, the calls for unity they know will not go heeded by many. There will be pushback. There will be those who disagree. There will be those who continue to prosecute their worldview and, and arguments along the 2020 election and other such issues. And so they, they built that into the price. They may suffer a little politically by doing this performative theater trial, as you were describing. But ultimately, so long as they continue to foment discord along racial and gender lines, they can conquer. And so that's really the, the play, and the impeachment trial is in furtherance of that.
8: Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you have to look no further than the author Abraham Kendi, right? Who is the the sort of big superstar of the anti uh, anti-racist movement.
9: Right. He's, he's very clear
8: about something, right? He says there's nobody who isn't racist, right? You you can't not be racist. And the interesting thing about the notion of being a a, a racist is that it used to come with basically like sort of social capital pun- capital punishment, right? Like Jimmy degree, just like no, you're you're done, right? If 75 million people are racist, what are you going to do? Are you going to fire them all? There's nothing to be done. And this gets back to your original premise, which I think is so spot on. The way in which the media talk, the corporate media talks about Trump voters is kind of unbelievable. I think in the seven years that I've written at The Federalist, I don't think I've ever said anything about Obama voters. It wouldn't occur to me to because There's tens of millions of them. They're all different people. They all have different motivations. But somehow the Trump voter is this thing that we talk about in our society as if it's some monolith. And about about a year or two into his presidency, I started just traveling across the country. I was I was in Texas this past weekend talking to people. And voters are transactional, right? Like the people I talked to who voted for Trump, most of them aren't. You know, don't have like posters of him on the wall and and wear MAGA hats all around. (laughs) Right. right, they're transactional. They say, "I like his policies better. My life was better." And so, yeah, it is very, very dangerous when you start to lump millions and millions of people together as as this problem that has to be, you know, eradicated. Um, that you know, that's happened in in the history of the world, and it doesn't usually end very well.
2: Uh, well and, and do you think that uh, facts that may come out in uh, the trial proceeding? Will matter at all, I mean just and, and just working the logic of so he incited a riot, but yet you have the federal federal prosecutors right now have uh, made uh, conspiracy cases charged conspiracy, so a premeditated act of violence uh you have Mark Meadows on the Sunday shows, his former chief of staff saying that uh Trump gave uh, the green light to Secretary of Defense to order ten thousand national guards. Uh, National Guardsmen and women to the Capitol on January sixth, but the Capitol Police rebuffed that offer. I mean this sort of runs counter to a guy who was um, leading an insurrection at the capitol but But I just wonder if it if it matters at all they 're just going to come over the top with uh, montages of excerpted words from his speech and 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 videos of idiots inside the Capitol committing acts of violence. And uh, that will be the story that all the cable news uh, channels, with perhaps the exception of Fox, amplify. And so you'll just have half the country understanding one thing and and the other half of the country understanding something else.
8: I I think it depends a lot on what the Republican senators uh, who are planning to vote against uh, against conviction take. Right. So there's two ways to go. The safe way. For a Republican senator to go is just to say, I don't think this is constitutional. I'm voting against this on the process. And so I don't even have to address the underlying question, right? That's the easy way out. I think the smarter choice would be to prosecute the case. And I'll go a little further than you, not only to prosecute this absurd incitement charge which will be rebuffed in, in part with all of the things that Democrats said all summer while the, while the while our cities were burning. Right. But I go even a step further, and I think a guy like Rand Paul might do this. I prosecute the election irregularities case. I, I, I would say, listen, all these laws in all these states got changed on the fly, and you're telling me this is the, the most secure election in American history? That's impossible. It's, it's abject foolishness. So I would like to see them prosecute, not to say Trump won the election, right, because I don't, I don't, I don't know that anybody you know, believes that at this point. But my goodness, what's happening to our elections needs to be looked at, and that's another part of this, right? Another part of this is now, if you start raising questions about mail-in voting, what are you? You're a MAGA terrorist, right? <laughs>
2: Uh, Right. No, no, that's right. I mean, you're not allowed to raise questions about uh, uh, anything that happened in 2020. And so, you know, I don't know where the line is. So does that mean so when this legislation that's filed in both the House and the Senate by Democrats to federalize what happened in 2020 and make that the new way we conduct federal elections? If anybody votes against that, if anybody has any questions about that, uh, then you're also a domestic terrorist. And, and Nicole Wallace over at MB, M- MSNBC wants to order a drone strike on you.
8: Pretty much. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know. <laughs> okay. I at mean, well, least
2: I know I, where I stand.
8: I, I, no, I, I mean, listen, I do lay some of the, the, the blame for this at Trump's feet. I think that he did drag this out way too long. I think I understood why he did. You know, the day that it was called for Biden, I, I remember talking to some of my colleagues at the and I was like, I said, you know, what he should really do is concede right now and then launch an investigation.
10: Yeah.
8: Right. So 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 that we're clear that he's not doing this solely in his own interest. He's not doing this to try to, you know change the results or whatever. Uh you know, I wish that he would have done that. I, I, I think in retrospect maybe he does too. But we can't allow we can't allow all of this, you know aggrandization of what happened uh at the capitol to 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 mean that we don't get to question what progressives want to do with our voting laws ever again i mean that's – you know we re- we really will lose our government that way
2: uh, I, I I got one more question I want you to tackle before you go, and uh, we're up against a break so let's take a break and and just uh, when we come back, I want to talk about um the secret uh, election, uh, the secret campaign of 2020, the Molly Ball piece from Time that uh, everybody's talking about, and and uh, what your takeaway, uh, top line takeaway from that was. More with David Marcus, New York correspondent for the Federalist.com, New York Post contributor. Right after this.
0: Love The podcast on the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're pleased to be rejoined by David Marcus, the New York correspondent for The Federalist, federalist.com, contributed to the New York Post. And David, the molly uh, ball piece in Time magazine that everybody is kicking around, and we've been doing it on the show the last couple of days, too. Um, your takeaway f- from that as a, in terms of lessons Republicans should learn from the election, lessons about uh, what was going on in terms of changing state laws through administrative agencies or through state courts, as we saw, where, you know, you could argue that the election was lost by Labor Day in some respects. And sort of the same thing here with this sort of shadowy uh, group of individuals that were working to legitimize the outcome well in advance of when anybody ostensibly could have known what it would be.
8: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's the they're saying the quiet part out loud. Right. And, and what's interesting about that is that the reason that they feel free to now say, oh, hey, by the way, we were secretly like, you know, organizing behind the scenes to make sure that, like, Joe Biden got elected. Uh, the reason they feel that they can do that and say that is because they really do see a fundamentally moral component to this, right? Like, th- they they really believe that Trump, and again, and his voters, um, are, are sort of deeply immoral. And whatever means you need to use to get him out of power uh, were by, by definition sort of justified. So it's shocking on the one hand that they would be so open about this. Uh, but on the other hand, like, you understand why, you know, like I, I saw a writer named Amy Sifkin was on, on Twitter this morning. And, and I just, you know, I happened to see the tweet and she said, you know, it's only been three weeks, but I feel like my life has changed so much. And my, <laughs> my, my, my initial, my initial thought was, I, I bet the guys that got fired from the Keystone pipeline feel that way too. <laughs> um, yeah. But, not
2: my, funny, that, but my second yeah. thought
8: was, what's wrong with you? like, okay, like I did not want Joe Biden to be president. Joe Biden's president, but I'm not going to be curled up in the fetal position in, 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 in a state of depression for the next four years. And it just seems like a lot of these people were, and it's frankly weird and bizarre.
2: I guess it speaks to, you know, how empty their lives are. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it, how one-dimensional they are as human beings, that everything rises or falls with who's in the White House. Uh, that's some proxy for... I don't know everything that uh, you believe in everything that informs your day-to-day living that, that, that is just that, I mean, it's psychotic. It really is. I don't know how else to describe it. It also speaks to sort of the, where our, our culture is and, and the politics in our culture. But, but I mean, I, you just live and die with what's happening in some faraway land that you have very little impact on. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. David Marcus, a New York correspondent for The Federalist, thefederalist.com, and contributed to the New York Post. David, thanks as always. Appreciate it.
8: Always a pleasure. Thanks. Take care.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. I'm a staunch supporter of Joe Biden and voted for him to save this country, writes Betsy Leroy. She is the proprietor of Pizza by Elizabeth's just outside of Wilmington, Delaware. Staunch supporter Joe Biden voted for him to save this country problem is, his policies won't allow her to save her business. This president and his team may understand Delaware politics, but I'm not sure they understand the difficulties of Delaware restaurants. How else to explain his his proposal to raise the minimum wage for our servers and bartenders from $2.23 an hour to $15 an hour, an increase of more than 400%, which would be a death knell for our industry. And she, uh, writing in the uh, Wall Street Journal is urging Joe Biden to be something he's not, a leader, moderate. Uh, Maybe uh, this is a cautionary tale, and I don't mean to pile on, but, I mean, to some extent, (laughs) Uh, Betsy Leroy, maybe uh, she is a cautionary tale for people who make political decisions based on personality rather than on policy. I voted for him to save this country, but uh, I guess my business is going to have to be sacrificed. I I I suppose she wasn't ready for that. I don't know how she could have missed it. I don't know how she could have missed that a Biden administration would be Bolshevik Bernie staffers implementing Obama policies as we're seeing play out in real time. I I should say Obama staffers. I got it reversed. Obama staffers implementing Bolshevik Bernie policies as we're seeing play out in real time. How was that uh, unclear? Do you think they care that the CBO projects a $15 minimum wage mandate would cost 1.4 million jobs? You got, you're going to have to spill a little blood to create heaven on earth, as all authoritarians say. Oh, and by the way, this um, uh, job loss that has occurred and continues to. Uh, remember how 2008-2009, the Great Recession was a man session? Um, this is the opposite. Uh, Carol Markowitz had a good piece in the New York Post talking about this. Where are the feminists? Uh, the National Women's Center noted that the December jobs numbers, 140,000 jobs lost. It was 156,000 jobs that women lost while men actually gained 16,000 jobs in November. Even uh, writes Markowitz, even more female workers may have felt forced to voluntarily, quote unquote, give up their jobs to be home looking after kids exiled from their school buildings at the behest of the powerful teachers unions. Oh, and as CNN reports, the job losses hit black and Hispanic women disproportionately. Feminists are supposed to care about minorities along with women, aren't they? Hmm. Confusing times. Uh, And uh, among those confused is Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, she had this exchange with uh, Fox News' Peter Ducey. continued exchange over the cancellation of the Keystone pipeline with other pipelines in the crosshairs, and uh, those uh, 11,000 jobs that have reportedly been lost— uh, those green jobs that are coding jobs that the, those people are going to have access to? When do those come online? When
1: is it that the Biden administration is going to let the thousands of uh, fossil fuel industry workers, whether it's pipeline workers or construction workers, who are either out of work or will soon be out of work because of a Biden EO, uh, when it is and where it is that they can go for their green job? And that is something the administration has promised. Uh, there is now a gap so i'm just curious when that happens when those people can count on that
4: well i'd certainly welcome you to present your data of all the thousands and thousands of people who uh, won't be getting a green job maybe next time you're here you well, can no, present that but you said
1: that they would be getting green jobs so i'm just asking when that happens. Uh, richard trumpka who is a friend longtime friend mm-hmm. of joe biden says about that day one keystone eo he says i wish he the president has paired that more carefully with the thing that he did second by saying, here's where we are creating the jobs. So there's partial evidence from Richard Trumka.
4: Well, you didn't include all of his interview. Would you like to include the rest? So
1: so how about this? Uh, The Laborers International Union of North America said the Keystone decision will cost 1,000 existing union jobs and 10,000 projected construction jobs.
4: Well, what Mr. Trump also indicated in the same interview was that President Biden has proposed a climate plan with transformative investments in infrastructure and laid out a plan that will not only create millions of good union jobs, but also help tackle the climate crisis. And as the president has indicated when he gave his primetime address uh, to talk about the American Rescue Plan, he talked about his plans to also put forward a jobs plan uh, in, the, in the weeks or months following. And he has every plan to do exactly that.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, what's the big deal? You lost your job yesterday. Uh, President Biden is going to get around to proposing a jobs plan in the weeks or months to come. You know, again, there's going to be a little blood spilled when you're creating heaven on earth. So just uh, chill out, man. She's also an idiot. What does that mean? present my evidence about the jobs are not going to get. I'm asking you when they're going to get jobs. It's just idiotic. By the way, AFL's AFL-CIO President uh, Richard Trumka sat down with some fungible reporter for Axios and was asked about this. Here's Trumka on the Keystone Pipeline cancellation.
3: Can you explain why the president was right?
0: Well, I, I wish he hadn't done that on the first day because the Labor's International was right. It did and will cost us jobs in, in the process. If, I wish he had paired that more carefully uh, with uh, the the thing that he did second by saying, "Here's where we're creating jobs. We can do mine reclamation. We can fix leaks and we can fix seeps and create hundreds of thousands of jobs in doing all of that stuff." You think Biden realizes
7: that that was a mistake, that announcement?
0: I, I think so. Yes. Did you
7: talk to him about it?
0: I
2: have not. <laughs> I, think he think he, I think he thinks it was a mistake. No, he doesn't. And it doesn't matter what he thinks, uh, Trumpka on um, these, uh, how it's going to change going f- f- uh, forward. This is, you know, sort of great political interference. Trump is running for Biden at present.
0: Uh, I don't know. Uh, I know this. If he does, he'll pair it with job creation. Uh, that will be greater than the number of jobs lost
2: that's if he cancels more pipelines so right that's what's going to happen next time because he's learned his lesson according to Trumpka, who hasn't talked to him and the way that you pair it is by killing actual jobs and then you know some weeks from months down the road proposing a package that would ostensibly maybe possibly create other jobs to backfill the jobs that you killed that may or may not be available to the job holders that you unemployed through your policy. I mean, this is, you know, just everything is government centric here. Government takes, government gives back. You got to wait. You're on the sidelines. You vote, you say, uh, vote for me to save the world. And you sacrifice your business on the altar of me saving the world like that uh, woman in Delaware. I I hope these are cautionary tales. I doubt so many on the left who are completely uh, fear addled and uh, agit prop uh, laden. It will, but one can hope. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by David Harsani, who is a, a reporter or a columnist for National Review. He's also a uh, author. He wrote the book um, First Freedom, America's Enduring History with the Gun. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, just on the uh, the minimum wage, which I know uh, the report is that it's not going to make the uh, the two trillion dollars in funny money scheduled to be uh, spent, but uh, they'll wait for a later point in time where it's more politically advantageous to serve up that uh, populist uh, grist for the mill.
8: Right, and it's interesting you met, you were talking about the um, pipeline as well when you I think. The minimum wage and things like this, where where voters hear something they like, it's populist, feels good. They feel like they really have no cost to pay. It's not even a tax increase or anything, just forcing greedy businesses to give people more money. Sounds good, feels good. But then when people start implementing those plans, you realize that the policies themselves are quite destructive, especially, I mean, both, actually. But the minimum wage, obviously, is just a job killer. But more than that, it affects poorer places, more than rich places where most people make fifteen million about fifty fifty dollars a uh, an hour anyway like New York City, but in West Virginia or Nebraska or somewhere else um, you're destroying restaurants and, and businesses of that nature
2: uh, and, it's, and also, one,
8: it's also a barrier for jobs yeah
2: when we come back with national reviews David Harsani will uh, pick up uh, our discussion about uh, the minimum wage fight as well as uh, get his perspective on impeachment trial 2.0 more right after this. Next.
0: Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were speaking with NRO David Harsani about the job losses already occurring under President Biden. And uh, I want to uh, fold in the minimum wage fight before us. Because I think people listen to this. We've had this fight over the minimum wage every time it's been raised over the many years, and and now we're at 15. And so, so well, you know, we raised it, and nothing happened. Everything uh, just went on their merry way, and people forgot about it. It was fine. Well, it wasn't fine. And, you know, it's it's the the seen versus the unseen, and the authoritarian always counts on people to— to pay no attention to the unseen or not connect dots so they see what is apparently unseen and that is things like you were just describing in poor areas it's a barrier to job creation and so the poor areas of big urban centers uh, or rural areas uh, never get less poor because the barriers to creating a job employing people continue to get uh, beyond what the market will provide and so this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, not the only bad policy, but one of the policies that perpetuates poverty.
8: Right. Most, uh, I think, 58% of, of people who make minimum wage, wherever they are, are young people who probably work in, you know, in a fast food place or wherever. It's not a, a lifetime job, and it's 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 not a sort of static group. They, they, these are people passing through. But when you lift the wage, you create a barrier for people getting into that flow. So it's like people just can't understand because it feels good that the minimum wage is zero, as Thomas Sowell said, and that is the real minimum wage. And that's the wage that you create for people who won't be getting jobs in the future. Um, as you say, it's just some, not something people see.
2: Uh, I thought the other, the the piece that Carol Markowitz wrote in the post was really good too, just focusing on on, you know, who you say you represent and then who's getting punished the most by your uh, lockdown or policies. And, and the, um, Boy, the stones on these lockdowning governors and mayors to be decrying the unemployment and the economic devastation that the pandemic has wrought is really something to behold. But this is, uh, I guess, their uh, real skill set is uh, getting people to share in their delusions.
8: Yeah. And and on that topic, I mean, I, sometimes it's just so hard for me to believe when I see people cel- basically celebrating lockdown, to, you know, politicians talking about in patriotic terms of how easily large swaps of large numbers of people have have just taken to it and listen and don't push back against its authoritarianism i mean i don't know if you saw the tampa bay mayor i think said of the people celebrating outside that, that that the police would track them down and identify them i mean i just can't even believe people speak this way right and of course the lockdowns themselves are the worst because you're destroying the economy. And then people will have to rely more and more on government, which frankly, I think a lot of people are are in some sense happy about. Uh,
2: Interesting. The Tampa story uh, we mentioned earlier, Ron DeSantis uh, signed an executive order back in September, prohibiting municipalities from imposing fines or penalties for not wearing masks. So you can have a mask requirement in Tampa Bay or wherever, whatever, on the other community, but you can't impose penalties. So, uh, The Tampa mayor may be Obloviating to uh, Curry favor with the press corps, but she runs into Ron DeSantis, who of course has been treated As the worst person in the western world
8: Yeah, and he's done A pretty good job down there Um, And the mask thing, you know I I wrote about this, I have a piece coming up soon And I just feel like I made a big turn on it I feel it's really, you know The government should have no power to tell people To wear masks in the street In their buildings, fine, and if the target wants to Make me wear a mask, that's fine as well But this just these just diktats about masks, which are, you know, people treat as a a patriotic piece of cloth as well. It's just so disconcerting for me because I find them dehumanizing, frankly, in many ways. Not like some anti-masker. If you want me to wear a mask, I will. But I just it's obviously not been it's not stopped what's happening in any real way. And I just I worry about. I worry about the authoritarian instincts of these people who who just can tell me to put a piece of clothing on. I sound a little like a a wacko, but you know. (laughs) uh,
2: And with respect to um, the impeachment, before we let you go, um, Trump is going to be acquitted again. He'll have that second acquittal in his back pocket what would you recommend that uh, he do coming out of that acquittal should uh, we revisit some of these election issues at least not maybe in the context of relitigating the 2020 election but in the context of of putting pressure on state legislatures in particular states to tighten up their election law uh tighten up their election laws particularly as you see the Senate and House Democrats going all in to federalize what happened in 2020 so it is the permanent norm for elections presidential elections federal elections going forward
8: yeah I'm, I'm I'm totally opposed to any sort of federalizing of elections um i'm i want to you yeah know, i want to I make voting harder not easier sorry to say i mean i'm actually i'm not sorry to say i think uh you know this this just mail-in voting where they just send out ballots to everyone at the very least you should have to uh, request one i think but um states should make up their own minds and some already run good elections what i worried about is the places that like michigan and elsewhere which are maybe in play you have democrats i think running things and it's gonna be very difficult to fix that but i don't think i think the the, the republicans should be enticed by any sort of national uh you know uh answer to that to, to that problem i think they should uh just keep working on the states etc so But uh, Democrats have quite a bit of power right now, so we'll see what happens.
2: And what about, um, again, Molly Ball's piece in Time that everybody's talking about, we talked about a bit yesterday, the uh, secret uh, campaign and these um, members of the Illuminati that were pulled together to uh, make sure everybody understood that anything that happened, no matter what it looked like, was legitimate and preparing people that the election returns may not all come in on election night as we're used to because of these uh, unprecedented times and so on and so forth. And 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 uh, how effective, frankly, the secret campaign that was cobbled together under the auspices of making sure everybody knew everything was on the up and up, which is why you do things in secret, to make sure everybody knows it's on the up and up. Okay, um, But one of the, the key takeaways I had was this uh, solution to pressure platforms to enforce their rules, remove content, accounts that spread mis- disinformation as those complaining, so define it and uh be more aggressive policing content in the first place. Uh this was a way to prevent uh social media platforms from having the same utility for for Trump and and ostensibly for Republicans in 2020 that it had for him in 2016.
8: Yeah, I mean, I thought some of that piece was a little bit overblown with in the sense of being this concerted effort by the left i mean there is a concerted effort and that's how politics you know are and and i think that uh, republicans need to do a better job as they did though the 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 social media aspect of it is constantly worrying me and i really don't have answers for it i mean i think once you let government decide what fairness looks like or who should be on a site or who should be able to speak first of all it's going to be turned on you sooner or later but more than that it just as a principle i don't think it's a good idea so I don't have very good answers for that. When I tell people they should build their own sites, they laugh at me. <laughs> but I mean, that seems to be the way forward in the long term to build your own institutions, your own news organizations, because we don't have very many left, and your own websites and things like that. I'm not yeah. sure how else to deal with it.
2: Yeah. And we, we and we better get to it in a hurry. Otherwise, uh, you know, by the time it turns on them, it will be too late. There's nobody left to to, right. uh, to to leverage that turning. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Maybe we should have believed uh, politicians like Bolshevik Bernie when he was praising Hugo Chavez. Uh, Hollywood celebrities like Sean Penn praising Hugo Chavez left-wing columnists like uh, David Sirota praising uh, Hugo Chavez, talking about the economic miracle occurring in Venezuela. Maybe we should have believed their affinity for Chavezian policies uh, were they ever to get power and the ability to advance them. Isn't that what we see happening both in terms of law as well as in terms of culture? for more on this topic where america might be going and um, a couple of gentlemen who can offer some cautionary tales Please be joined again by andres guillarte and jorge galicia they are regular speakers for the fund for american studies they have been doing college campus tours across the united states for many months now attempting to warn young people in america about the ravages of socialist policies because they've seen these, those ravages firsthand in their home country of Venezuela, Andres and Jorge, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it.
10: Oh, thank you, Dan, for the invitation. I really appreciate uh, being here again.
9: Well, um, thank you, Dan, to be back on your show.
2: Yeah, yeah, pleasure to have you guys back. So, um, you know, sort of give give me a sense of, um, you know, you you started pre pandemic with this college tour, and now you've come through, and, and obviously we're currently dealing with it. Just give me a sense of how people, young people, are receiving what you have to say about Venezuela and perhaps some of the comparisons you're making to the policies being pursued today and maybe even uh, more poignantly so in the last 30 days.
9: Absolutely. Ben. So we started pre-pandemic, and, you know, we all, have always received support from the students because they know the struggles that we're facing in Venezuela, and we see we, we have seen a lot of solidarity. We also a lot of misinformation, a lot of people... Didn't know that Venezuela was that bad. A lot of people didn't actually know, believe that what uh, it was true because, you know, well, not always the media be, gives the actual picture of what is going on. And also, a lot of people didn't know that, you know, that also can happen here and everywhere because the thing is that if you don't manage your resources appropriately and you start implementing socialized um, policies that aim to just control the population instead of giving liberty, then you're going to have the same result. It doesn't matter where in the, in the world you are. You're always going to have the same misery in your, in your country if you don't put freedom before solidarity I and mean, this kind of stuff that you're trying to control people. So what we see in the last 30 days, well, you know, the, the Biden administration has been signing a lot of executive actions because he, he believes that he cannot gain support from the Republicans or he doesn't want to. But we have seen that they're starting to make unilateral policies. And, you know, we're going to start seeing those results in the upcoming months. And maybe they're not going to be as good as they think they will.
2: Is there an appreciation among the students of, of what's happened and continues uh, to happen in Venezuela? I mean, just uh, the displacement of Venezuelan families alone numbers in what, five and a half million that have fled to neighboring countries like Ecuador and Colombia.
10: Well, then I would say uh, a lot of the students who are, I, I have met a lot of the students during this uh, last year, and some of them have this uh, crazy idea that you know all of the bad economic results that we're seeing from Venezuela and all of the humanitarian catastrophe, it is all because of uh, you know United States sanctions, and uh, I I I I think it is laughable to 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 be incredible because. Uh, you know, the first sanction that we ever saw against the Venezuelan economy didn't arrive until the year 2017. And we have seen the collapse since uh, at least, at the very least, uh, the year 2014. We have already, that year we have been seeing leaving the country a starvation all over the streets. So this is the consequences of a failed uh, socialist system that uh, it was never going to work. And hopefully we, we cannot allow something like that to happen here in america because as, as andre said, said if we follow the same ideas if we follow uh, if we apply the same policies we are going to end, we're gonna and we're gonna end up in a pretty similar situation unfortunately again we don't want that to happen
2: uh when we come back i, I want to uh, get uh, some perspective on the questions you get asked as you tell your story and you address some of the policies that they're otherwise inclined to support in a domestic context and they can't understand how they can have such implications uh, in, in, in Venezuela, and and just sort of starting from the premise that so many start from, which is, well, what we see happen in a, in a country like Venezuela or in the Soviet bloc once upon a time, well, that can't happen here. Uh, I'll get uh, your perspectives on that. Speaking with Andres Gilarte and Jorge Galicia, they are speakers uh, for the Fund for American Studies, and they are Continuing their college campus tour trying to educate young college students in America about uh, the dangers of pursuing the socialist policies that have become incredibly popular, uh, become popular and incredibly so is probably a better way to say it. We'll be right back with more
0: we don't need no we don't The more you listen, the more you'll know. This, this, this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Andres Gilarte and Jorge Galicia. They are uh, Venezuelans uh, who are in this country doing a college campus tour to educate American college students about the dangers of socialist policies regular fund for american studies speakers as well uh, gentlemen uh, the it can't happen here argument uh, what happened in your country Jorge and Andres that's a terrible thing but america's different and uh, even if we pursue some of the same policies that the, uh, the 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 chavez and maduro governments have pursued that that can't what happened in venezuela can't happen here
9: well you know the scary part is that probably it's not going to happen the same thing it's going to probably happen something completely different because it's not always the same misery you know I mean it depends on the country like it's just like a cancer it depends on the person it can be really hard it can be it can be so totally different from a person to person but in the end you're gonna die because of that if you don't treat it well so in Cuba we have seen what has done to that country we see what has happened in the Soviet Union we see what happened in China under Mao. we've seen how, how it happened everywhere and the scary part is how get that be here in the U.S., in the you know the country of freedom. How can something like that happen here? Well, the thing is, like if you start, for example, um, enacting policies of can spiking the minimum wage, doubling in many, many in the states that they didn't have it uh, in, in that in that amount from seven point five dollars to fifteen, and you're you're gonna start seeing like it happened in California, where Kroger's just shut down in a county two of these stores because, of course, if you just fact, that you're going to double the cost that you're implementing in the wages of your of your employees, and you don't have somewhere else to get the money from. You're going to start closing stores, or otherwise you're going to start increasing the prices of your of your products. Just like you have in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez increased the minimum wage a lot of times, and also Maduro. And eventually, the, the source can manage that,
2: right? And so, so that so minimum wage policy, uh, printing money. Uh, crackdowns against dissidents—you uh, know, not not respecting uh, anybody that has an opposing viewpoint. I mean, when you start to draw some of the parallels, like the one that you just mentioned, minimum wage. Since we're talking about fifteen dollars minimum wage here, mandate. What, what's the reaction you get from students?
10: Listen, I uh, I think another dis- an important distinction that we have uh, uh, to make here—you know—a a lot of the students when 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 I talk to them, they say. Well, you, but yeah, but listen, we don't want the kind of authoritarian socialism that you currently have in Venezuela. We know that's that's bad, but we have what we want: democratic socialism, right? But you know, every time I I hear this idea, and uh, they, they, what what I reply to them is like, listen, the 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 first major steps Venezuela gave into socialism was uh, when we were still a democracy. You know, in, in 1975. Uh, yeah, Venezuela nationalized our oil industry. They uh, started to create a lot of social programs, subsidies, uh, minimum wage, all of these kind of uh, bad policies. And because of that, that's when actually the the, the decline of Venezuela actually began. And the the, the economic crisis that that uh, uh, policies created it, it was basically the reason that we got Hugo, uh, someone like Hugo Chavez elected. So Uh, I always try to explain to students that, in a sense, at least in Venezuela, democratic socialism gave us the path to, you know, to the more uh, authoritarian socialism and hardcore Marxism that we currently have in Venezuela.
4: Right. Why we like want,
2: a... yeah, we want the redistribution without, uh, without repression. Well, that, that's sort of, uh, like wanting the water without the wet, it turns out. And I know a lot of these kids have a romantic uh, view of democrat socialism. They look to Scandinavian countries and so forth. Well, number one, it turns out that according on, on the economic freedom index, some of those Scandinavian countries turn out to be more free than the United States at present. I mean, thinking about uh, things like school choice. In Sweden and 401k style pension uh, programs, even in places like Chile, um, as opposed to public sector pension programs. So, so you know, it's, it's not so easy as they want to make it, so tidy as they want to make it. And, and the problem in the United States is, and you guys speak to this, is uh, different than those Scandinavian countries or Western European countries, is, uh, you know, this is not a homogenous country. And particularly when you have so much of the population and, and a political party that is obsessed with identity politics, that, you know, the intersection between those two, the redistributionist impulses of the Democrat Socialist and the uh, the demography and the radicalization uh, that identity, identitarian politics has brought to certain quarters in this country. I mean, that is really a dangerous mix for something akin to the autocracies we've seen in other parts of the world.
9: You're absolutely right, right? You know, in Venezuela, Chavez also started to implement this kind of identity politics. You know, it, it, it didn't start with gender, but it started from nationalism. For example, he started to implement a lot of uh, from the native Americans in Venezuela starting to say that or if you came from the if you're an immigrant, if you're an European-born kind of Venezuela, if you have European blood, then you were not an actual Venezuelan and stuff like that. Because in the end, the problem when you start in a, a combining identity with politics, it's like you're only going to create start in, in creating more conflict with the, between people. And what happened in Venezuela is that most of the business owner owners of that time, there were uh, sons of the European immigrants from the 40s and the 50s. So when he started uh, implementing uh, policies against them and say, demonizing them and demonizing other people, well, eventually they started also attacking their businesses, and that's how he, all, he get he got the the, the cultural uh, upper ground to say, "Well, if they're bad, then their businesses are bad, and we have to take them, we have to confiscate it and give it to the people." It depends on the in the country. The country, some like in Venezuela, they did it with against the European uh, uh, boring. Uh, all of those immigrants and here they're saying they're doing it against white people for example or stuff like that and they can say whatever what, what they want because they are the ones in power right you you know you, you you can't you can't just combine identity with politics because in the end you have to enact politics for everyone or like we want we want it to be like that you don't put names on um on politics just you like you have to open the the, the the politics you have to open the laws. That is just for everyone. It doesn't matter what identity you are. It doesn't matter what, what the, the color of your, uh, your skin is. It's just open to everyone. But what we're seeing here in the U.S., if they're trying, uh, if they're wanting to end the conflict among some races, well, they're actually just increasing it.
2: Uh, uh, we got to take one more break. Uh, I want to come back with uh, Andres Galarte and Jorge Galicia. their T- uh, Fund for American Studies, TFAS speakers, uh, doing college campus tour. I want to uh, understand uh, how you are being received by the administrators and professors on college campuses that you visit when you're talking to the students. We'll have more with these gentlemen right after this.
0: Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. Pleased to be rejoined by Andres Galarte and Jorge Galicia. They're Fund for American Studies speakers uh, from Venezuela originally, doing a college campus tour in America to uh, try to inform American college students about the implications of socialist policies, authoritarian regimes, like the Chavez and Maduro regimes in their home country. And, uh, guys, how do... The uh, you know adults quote unquote on college campuses, the administrators and the professors, how do they receive? How do they react to what you have to say about Venezuela and and socialism when you're addressing their students?
10: Well, then I would I would say you know majority of uh, campuses where I have visited so far, uh, the welcoming has been uh, pretty great. I did have a, a kind of a weird experience in Oklahoma where uh, one professor said the audience before. Uh, my presentation start. She says something like, "Hey, if you have a disagreement with Jorge, what you have to do, you have to go to the to the back of the stage and sit, uh, by giving you know behind your your you have to give your back to him to 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 express that your disagreement, and that's it." I, I don't
6: know that was <laughs> that was super super weird and I It could have know,
2: been worse. Yeah, it's it's yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. pretty immature I, but it could have been worse. It it could have yeah, been, yeah, you know, I, back I, in the day, back when I was in college, I remember if you disagree with the speaker, you sit there politely and uh you disagree with them and then you maybe ask a question or make a point in disagreement when it comes to exactly. Q&A, but I guess that's uh <laughs> that's uh you know, a uh, antiquated notion these days.
10: Yeah, yeah, I feel like I'm that like in the, the kindergarten, I don't know. <laughs> But other than that, I, I, I feel it has been great, and uh, we have had uh, some really great debates in different campuses. Uh, I did have uh, in Indianapolis and and in Texas and, and sorry in Montana uh, some situations where I but I would say this was the students, not probably not the professors, where they uh, vandalized our flyers to you know that were promoting the event. And uh, also in Texas, we had a group of students uh, that were like. Uh, outside the room where the event was going to take place and they were uh, screaming bad stuff. But at the end, you know, they allowed the event to happen and they didn't, they didn't even get into the event to hear what I had to say. So yeah, that has been my experience with, uh, with campuses.
2: Vandalizing uh, flyers or, or, you know, defacing flyers and trying to shout you down or prevent you from speaking. Uh, How ironic that they don't understand this is exactly what you're talking about (laughs) happening in Venezuela. (laughs) They're providing a a case study in in the veracity of what you're saying. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Andres Guillarte and Jorge Galicia, Fund for American Studies speakers, doing a college campus tour, coming to a college campus near you to address students about what happened in Venezuela and the cautionary tale it presents for America. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
9: Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for the
2: invitation. I appreciate it. Take care. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org.
6: This is the Dan Proft Show.